Hi, and welcome to the Wards Auto Podcast. I'm David Kiley, Senior Editor of Wards Auto and your host. There's always much going on in the world of automotive, and especially during this time of transition, from the world of the internal combustion engine to an era of electrification. And what is most in the news these days is slowing investments, slowing of production of EVs, because there's more inventory out there than demand. And I'm seeing a lot of chatter in social media and in the media in general, suggesting that consumer interest in EVs is waning or slowing. Well, let's get a grip on ourselves and take a breath and understand what is actually going on. First, or number one, this was never going to be easy. The world and ecosystem around EVs is new and unfamiliar to the vast majority of the public. Sometimes it's difficult for us inside the industry to remember that I have covered this industry for 40 years. Lexus has been in the market since 1989, I believe, and I constantly run into people who have no idea that it is even part of Toyota. Same goes for people who don't know that Acura is part of Honda. I attended a conference this week where the head of Toyota Quality and Purchasing told the audience that the company and its dealers, after almost 30 years of selling the Prius, gets asked, where do I plug it in? And that's not for the Prius plug-in, which is relatively new. That's just for the standard hybrid. Look, matching up production schedules at a factory producing EVs or batteries with consumer demand during a monumental shift in mobility is incredibly difficult. It was always going to be difficult and painful. It was not ever going to be a straight line upward on the graph like a hockey stick. We have to understand that we have probably burned through the first wave of adopters, the early adopters, who are lovers of the new, new technology, and who are geeked about driving EVs. Give consumers a break. People are busy. They have lots of problems in their lives. They have kids to raise, elderly parents to look after, lunches to pack, job security to worry about, health problems to manage, budgets to balance, worries on top of worries on top of worries. The last thing that many car buyers and families have time for is to buy a vehicle that they have to rely on day in and day out that is a mystery to them, that they have to worry about not being able to keep on the road because charging is inconvenient. They may be vaguely aware that the government is trying to phase out ICE vehicles, but they know it's 10 and 20 years off. They don't want to think about it now. Look, I know people who don't want to think about much of anything but their next paycheck, their kid's graduation, or getting through Christmas. What I'm trying to say is that we in the industry and the government need to give people a break and give them time to understand this transition. Give them time to see a more ubiquitous charging network develop so it's familiar to them. Give them time to absorb what the change means. That all may be bad news for companies making enormous investments in the EV ecosystem now, but that's the way it is. 
Look, people aren't put off the idea of EVs unless they're among those willing to absorb all the politically motivated and unhelpful rhetoric about EVs and climate change and things like that, or any government mandates of any kind that they find have negative feelings about. They just need time. And the industry and government need to acknowledge that and come up with thoughtful, effective communication strategies to bring consumers along. And I'll tell you, most advertising and messaging around this, frankly, has been crap. And companies and the government are not spending enough time and money bringing people along properly. Well, that's my essay for the week. Now to our guests. Our first guest is going to be Tim Reeser, CEO of Lightning E-Motors, which is a company that I think has a really smart business model, selling fleet operators mobility solutions since 2009. What Lightning E-Motors does is they manufacture cargo vans, shuttle buses, school buses, Class 6 work trucks, Class 7 city buses, and motor coaches. We will also talk with Jimmy Douglas, founder of Plug, which is an online used car wholesale marketplace devoted specifically to facilitate the buying and selling of used EVs among dealers and fleets. Jimmy's also a former Tesla executive, and he gives us a few thoughts about his former employer and infamous boss who continues to disrupt the entire auto industry and dominate the discussion about EVs. So when we come back after this brief message from our sponsor, American Axle, we will talk to both gentlemen about their businesses and the demand that they are tapping into. This podcast is brought to you by American Axle and Manufacturing. AAM is designing, engineering, and manufacturing award-winning vehicle technologies to power a more sustainable future. Their team is pushing the boundaries of disruption all around the world with over 80 global locations in 18 countries. To learn more and join the team that is bringing the future faster, visit aam.com careers. And I'm here with Tim Reeser, uh, CEO of Lightning E-Motors, and uh, we're at the AutoTech Electrification Conference. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. Happy to be here. So first, talk a bit about your business model when you started this company. So I started Lightning in 2008. Uh, Back then, of course, there wasn't enough battery tech to really electrify commercial vehicles. So we started out doing hydraulic hybrids, again, with the premise of saving fleets money on fuel, uh, more efficiency, uh, cleaner air, uh, less emissions coming out of the vehicles. And as the technology evolved and as the customers started looking for full zero emission solutions, uh, we evolved the business and in 2017 moved entirely away from hybrids into full zero emission vehicles, both uh, electric and hydrogen fuel cell. So one of the things that uh, we talk here at this conference and in general about consumer adoption of EVs, talk to us about what's going on out there today with regards to EV adoption for commercial uh, and fleet customers. 
To date, Dave, commercial and fleet customers have been slower adopters. There's less than 1% uh, total uh, electric vehicles within the commercial space. And when we think about commercial space, most of our focus has been medium duty. So we think about type A school buses, uh, delivery trucks and vans, um, and this sort of thing, uh, often, you know, shuttle buses that you see at the airport. Um, And within that space, there's been very little electrification to date. And now we're seeing a, a tremendous inflection. And that inflection is driven by two key things. One of them is uh, there's now $30 billion in new incentives. Um, and this is somewhat surprising to people. We've known about the the uh, passenger vehicle incentives for a while. But for example, an electric uh, a school can get a free electric school bus today. Many of the public transit uh, school or buses are totally funded by the Federal Transit Authority now if you want an electric version. So $30 billion in new money at both the state and federal level uh, and in both uh, the United States and in Canada. So the, the incentives are a big attraction. But by themselves, that isn't enough. We've had incentives for a while. California's had their HVIP programs incentives for a while. And it's never really driven the inflection we're seeing now and that we all believe we're going to see in the next couple of years, partially because it has to be more than just incentives. Um, you also need great products. And I think when we look at the lead that passenger vehicles have today, part of that was driven by having great products to drive. And so um, the same thing is now happening. The products we have, uh, you know, we're on our second and third generation school buses and our second and third generation delivery trucks. And they're frankly far better than they were uh, two years ago and three years and five years ago. So what's driving this adoption and this inflection point is not only incentives, but also the fact that the products have matured and we have really good products now that customers want and like. And then the third thing is there is mandates. So in California now, starting in 2024, Uh, Any fleet with more than 50 vehicles uh, has to begin uh, buying. Uh, They they won't be able to register uh, gasoline or diesel vehicles anymore. Uh, Same thing with with federal fleets and state fleets in the state of California. And there's 13 other states now that have uh, committed to following California's lead and also driving the same mandate. So you have these incentives, you have mandates, and you have the evolution of, of people like us now having a really good product that customers want. So I have to confess, I did not know that there was that much money in incentives for these kinds of vehicles. So let me, just to get my arms around this and our listeners, let's say I'm a town, we're here in Michigan, so let's say I'm a town like Detroit or Ann Arbor, let's say, and 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 I'm going to transition my school buses and my buses, you know, kind of inner city buses from from diesel to uh, to electric. What are the like the per bus incentives exactly? What does that add up to? So this is where it gets complicated and why, you know, Dave, you're not alone in, in not knowing this, this transition has happened. And a lot of these are new also. So it's important to know uh, this is changing on the fly. So what you see is first, uh, the EPA manages a, a pool of $5.9 billion that was allocated in the Infrastructure Act two years ago. Um, and it's allocated about a billion dollars a year. And it's allocated, the first tranche was allocated at about $300,000 of incentive per electric school bus. Now this year, instead of just uh, just a fixed amount per school bus, this year they put it out to bid. Um, and so it'll probably be more school buses, but less per school bus. Uh, our guess right now is probably the winners will probably be asking for $150,000 in incentives per school bus. But it's important to know that's not the only thing and that's what makes it a bit complicated, uh, but interesting. On top of that, any commercial vehicle that is larger than a uh, 
10,000 pounds, or I'm sorry, larger than a 15,000 pounds, so class four and larger, also gets $40,000 from the Inflation Reduction Act a year ago. So in it, and these are stackable. So in addition to the EPA money, or even if you don't win the EPA money, you can still get $40,000 from the EPA or I'm sorry, from the Inflation Reduction Act, $40,000 from the IRA. Um, and that's just a straight rebate from the IRS if you're a school. Um, if you're a commercial entity, you get a, a rebate from the IRS with your taxes. So $40,000 there stacked on top of what the EPA gives. And then in addition, many states, uh, Michigan right now, uh, to my knowledge, doesn't yet have a school bus incentive, but Colorado, New York, New Jersey, California, and others do. So you can stack a state incentive as those come on top and Canada also, given how close we are to Canada here, Canada has a full uh, both provincial and federal incentive on top of uh, what what you can get from others as well. So there's these stackable incentives, uh, state and local or provincial and, and federal in, in the case of Canada that all play out. Um, in addition to the uh, way these work in terms of operating cost savings. So a lot of these, even if all you got was just the, the $40,000 Inflation Reduction Act uh, from the IRS, if you combine that with the fact that this school bus no longer needs gasoline, uh, doesn't need brake changes as often, uh, doesn't need oil changes ever, um, that those two things together can make a big impact. So we have financing partners like Highland who will provide the bus to a, a school on a per mile basis uh, or a per month basis, making it easier for them to, to uh, reconcile the differences between, yes, the upfront cost can be more expensive, but you've got grants to, to reduce that, but the ongoing operation cost is much cheaper. So by looking at a long-term finance, uh, you can help a school reconcile that within their budget. So lots of ways to think about the savings, not just in terms of the incentives and the stackable incentives, but also in terms of total cost of ownership savings. So what is the, just so we, again, so we sort of see what the net effect is, what is the, like the upfront cost of a, of a typical school bus? So the best way to think about it is about two times, between two and three times the cost today, an electric bus versus a gasoline or diesel bus. So it is a pretty significant premium. Now, part of that is just low volumes, meaning people like us are building much lower volume of electric buses today than what has historically been built in gasoline or diesel. So during that low volume period, it's more expensive. So it's not always going to be a 250% premium, but today it's about a 250% premium. So, But what we're seeing is as our volumes are ramping up, and we can fully utilize our factory as the costs of many of our supply chain aspects are going down because our volumes are picking up. The costs are dropping significantly. And so, you know, over the long term, I still believe there will be a, a premium, an upfront premium, but a total cost of ownership savings over the life of the vehicle. But initially, you know, today it's a 250% premium to buy an electric vehicle, an electric school bus versus a gasoline or diesel. Um, in the future, you know, I think it may come down to as low as 150% premium. But my belief is, There'll always be an upfront premium, but total cost of ownership will still be better. So what is the, if I'm a, a purchasing person for a city or, uh, and, and, a, and I'm buying school buses, when you factor in all the incentives that you just talked about, is that, is that net that it's still like after, after those, those incentives and rebates and credits that it's still 250% or 300%? Or, or is that where it starts and then the, the incentives and the rebates bring it down closer to parity? 
Yeah, so the latter. In fact, so net-net, if, if you don't have any incentives, it's about a 250% uh, premium. Uh, in many cases with the incentives, you're getting a free electric bus versus paying uh, something for a gasoline or diesel bus. So in many cases with the incentives, it's significantly cheaper. But uh, we like to look at, we believe the, this technology has to be effective long-term even without incentives. So I think about, yes, even if you had to pay 250% more, if the operating costs are so much cheaper, does this does the the money still work out over the long term, even if you don't have any incentives? And the answer is, even at a 250% premium, it does. These still have a positive return on investment. But obviously, in most cases, people are getting you know one or more of these incentives. And in many cases, they're getting a free electric bus. So then <laughs> the money definitely works out in those cases. That's, that's amazing. The um, and, and the other kind of vehicles you're talking about are like shuttle buses and, you know, airports shuttle buses. And uh, uh, I don't think I've ridden on an EV uh, airport uh, airport bus, but one of the things that you mentioned in our session was that, that they are smoother uh, riding, which is, which is good news because I think I lost my pancreas a couple of times <laughs> at, at Detroit Airport on one of these, <laughs> one of these shuttle buses. It's just astonishing how rough, yes. how rough they are. Not only rough, but loud, because as you know, most of those are built on a, what GM or Ford would call a, you know, a van body. So the engine's sitting inside the, the passenger compartment, and so they're very noisy. Most of them have very clunky, uh, you know, four-speed transmissions that shift very harshly. Um, the air conditioning systems are very loud and inefficient, and as are the heating systems. So as an electric vehicle, we have a chance to rethink those things. So when we put batteries right down the center of the vehicle and, and fairly heavy batteries, you, it tends to baffle the suspension in a good way. Um, so they tend to ride smoother. They're all, all of our electric vehicles are single speed transmissions, so you don't have the clunking. And then from a, a quietness, they're dramatically quieter. You can carry on a conversation like we are here, um, whereas in a, in a typical gasoline one, you just can't. So same thing on the school buses, very dramatic difference because unlike kind of so many passenger vehicles and SUVs are as a gasoline vehicle are so refined, it, it when you switch it to electric, you don't notice these kind of uh, ride differences and, and noise differences as much. But in this case, you're, you're starting with such an unrefined vehicle in an airport shuttle or a school bus. When you make it electric, the, the difference is, is very, very noticeable. Well, now I'm, th- I'm wondering, for example, I just, um, you're in Colorado, so you probably have switched uh, planes in, in Salt Lake City, right? Yes. So um, because that, that airport is under construction, y- you wind up, uh, often getting a, uh, you know, kind of going through all these ramps and everything. And then they have those um, those vehicles on the tarmac that are shuttle buses. But I think those are electric, aren't they? So some of them are, yes. So you st- you do have some electrification that's occurred and, and has occurred many, you know, for a lot of years and things like that that made sense that we're just going back and forth on a tarmac. Um, so here, it, you know, what we're doing is making that more ubiquitous. The the shuttles to the parking lots, the shuttles to the airport, to the uh, hotels, um, the shuttles to the, the outside parking lots is now what we're seeing people really look at electrification to save money on fuel and total cost of ownership, fuel and brakes uh, and oil changes, um, but also to provide a better experience to the riders. So I have to say, I think you're an incredibly smart businessman because this model, and, and you said in our session that you, know, you really like the whole commercial vehicle space, because once governments decide that this is where we're going to go, one of the first things they do is 
put, you know, as they put the word out and use their their purchasing power to order, essentially, that X percent of, you know, the government fleets are going to adopt this new technology. And so you have a very predictable and, and, and to your point, like with, with the business that you're in, you, you don't have to worry about public infrastructure or anything else because because when you adopt to EVs, the the um, you're, you're essentially dealing with depot charging, you know, so it's just it's it's much more of a, a closed loop and and uh, hats off. You just you, you just don't have the headaches that that EV uh, passenger car producers are. Yes. No, and the, the other thing is we have more predictable routes. I think the hardest part for EV passenger vehicles have been that people say people want it for every last use case. And you mentioned that on the panel this morning that, you know, that, that people will start looking at their vehicles as fleets and saying, okay, if I got to drive to grandma's, I'm using a different vehicle today than if I'm going my three miles to work and back or my 20 miles to work and back. So, but in, in commercial vehicles, we don't have to convince somebody that the the vehicle has to be everything to them. Uh, you know, school buses have a route. They run the same fixed route every day. They don't go to grandma's on the weekend. They don't take a vacation to, to you know, the outskirts of wherever, uh, you know, once a month. They do the same route every day for the entire life of the vehicle. So that combined with, as you pointed out, Dave, the the charging, that charging is much easier in a depot variety. Um, but it's also much easier. Many of these vehicles have a lot of dwell time at night. So they're very predictably, a school bus uh, sits very predictably. And this is where you also get some other really interesting use cases. We're working with a lot of schools who want to use their school buses as uh, um, backup power. So you think today in most of North America, schools are a, a disaster recovery center. If you have a hurricane, if you have a flood, if you have a fire, uh, people go to the schools. Um, if those schools can leverage their school buses that have a lot of battery power as a backup power unit, uh, which they can be today in a vehicle-to-grid scenario, uh, you have other benefits to that. If you can also look at your school bus as a uh, peaker power plant, so some the utility companies are saying, hey, you've got 200 large school buses sitting in a school. If those school buses can be a peaker power plant because school buses don't drive at seven o'clock at night generally uh, when people need, you know, all the air conditioners that come on and the utility companies are struggling needing peak power. Um, if you can use those school buses as peaker power plants effectively, it's much, much less expensive than having to put in other infrastructure for that. So a lot of interesting use cases that occur in commercial vehicles that are much more difficult to predict uh, and manage and, and and drive in the in the passenger vehicle space. Hey, Tim Reeser, CEO of Lightning E-Motors. I really appreciate your time. Very interesting take. We've been mostly dealing with, uh, in this series, with the passenger car and, and consumer side of the business, but you gave us great insights on the commercial side. Excellent. Thank you again, Dave. Appreciate the time. Well, thanks to Tim Reeser. And now let's have a discussion with Jimmy Douglas and what the former Tesla exec is up to with his new company, Plug. This podcast was brought to you by American Axle and Manufacturing. AAM is designing, engineering, and manufacturing award-winning vehicle technologies to power a more sustainable future. Their team is pushing the boundaries of disruption all around the world with over 80 global locations in 18 countries. To learn more and join the team that is bringing the future faster, visit aam.com careers. So I'm here at the AutoTech Electrification Conference with Jimmy Douglas, who's the CEO and founder of Plug. Uh, Jimmy, thanks for joining us. Good morning, David. Thanks for having me. 
So we've been talking in this podcast series about EV adoption, mm -hmm. okay? And I feel like your company plug is you were thinking ahead before we like started ramping up on on just adopting of new EVs mm -hmm. because plug is all based on the sale of, of used EVs to both commercial and and individuals, right? Uh, it's a business to business marketplace. However, obviously uh, the uh, demand side of that is primarily dealerships. Mm -hmm. So anything acquired by them will make their way into the hands of customers. So it's important that we're empowering them with transparency, both at the point of wholesale, but also giving them the tools to have confident retail conversations. Tell us about, first of all, the issues around used EVs in terms of, because when I was looking at your website, I mean, everything makes sense. It's, you can't judge the condition and, and all of that of an EV the same way you do an internal combustion engine. So what, what is the secret sauce in terms of, of assessing the, the reliability and, and durability and life left in an EV versus a, an internal combustion vehicle? Yeah, what you said is absolutely true. EVs are fundamentally different assets than combustion vehicles. Their utility or their useful life uh, comes down to uh, things like their battery, their software, their computer hardware, things that you generally don't have to consider when you're purchasing a combustion vehicle. And yet today, most of these vehicles are transacted as if they're the same as combustion vehicles. And the good news is uh, reliability is less of a concern at this stage of the game than many people were concerned about. In fact, we've seen data that suggests that the longevity of EV batteries isn't even fully understood yet because it's quite tremendous and really exciting. But understanding uh, exactly what you're buying in terms of the feature set, uh, what's included, what's not included, and uh, the uh, the state of its technology is where things get a little more complicated because you're basically buying a computer on wheels. So one of the things that you talked about, the life of the battery, that's actually sort of the least thing. If I was buying a, a used EV, mm -hmm. the life of the battery is almost the last thing I would be worried about because we're seeing anecdotally, you know, that when you have some kind of a, an accident, let's say, in a Tesla or a Rivian or something like that, anecdotally, the reports that keep coming out on the Internet is that the bills for fixing these these things is, is astronomical compared with an ICE. Can you speak to that and also... Does that factor into your business model? It doesn't really factor into our business model because for the most part, we're looking at inventory that is retail ready or near retail ready. Uh, most of the reconditioning required would be lightweight cosmetic work and probably a set of tires. Okay. Uh, but the costs of repairs on EVs relative to ICE, of course, will continue to go down just like the cost of manufacturing them has continued to go down. It's just such an early industry. It's only about 1% of the used car market. So uh, the rails, if you will, for servicing and uh, keeping them on the road are yet to be built out. Because I've seen these stories about Rivians, you know, that it's $24,000 repair or something like that. And I think those kinds of things are, are uh, putting fence sitters, you know, uh, on the weight, you know, they're, they're sort of, when, when they read things like that, or when they read about a battery fire or something like that, they sort of lean back towards the, the non, not ready to buy side of the fence. What is the, the market? What is the demand for used EVs right now? 
Yeah, it's a pretty small percentage of the market right now, uh, but it's set to grow about 45x, uh, eclipsing about $300 billion in the next decade. So what we're looking at is a relatively small wedge or piece of the pie today, but its growth trajectory is exponential. So getting ahead of it now and skating where the puck is going, if you will, Mm -hmm. is what our strategy is. So when it comes to you're doing business directly with dealers, and with fleet. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. And others as well. Uh, The used EV landscape at dealers is super interesting uh, because there's uh, roughly 20,000 used EVs for sale on dealer lots right now. But a very small percentage of dealers that are participating in this, uh, about 3% of them are moving 30% of the market. And it's because they sell the cars 40% faster than the average. And these are dealers who are really specialized in EVs and uh, other dealers who might only have one or two, the cars sit for longer and they don't sell for any more money uh, on average. And uh, what I've noticed is that there's an appetite for dealers who receive vehicles, particularly as trade-ins, to have a a fast liquidation option uh, at a favorable price to dealers who do specialize. So that's where we're leaning in the most right now. So with Fleet, because I, I worked in the Ford ecosystem for a few years mm-hmm. on Ford Pro and that kind of thing. So they're, they're ramping that business. But has there been a, uh, a segment of the Fleet business that has already, you know, before things like the e-transit and thing were available, that there were already in the electric space, you, you know, kind of all, all in as you were and are interested in supplementing their new car's fleet with with used EVs? Yeah, absolutely. And many of them are faced with corporate mandates to electrify uh, their fleets. So this is uh, an increasing uh, line of business for every automaker of volume uh, with uh, an electrified lineup. And uh, for them, an important part of the equation is what is that residual value on the other end of its useful life? And we are Uh, looking at ways to be the best disposition option for those vehicles because the buyers on the other side of it will have the most transparency into what exactly they're getting, and we can facilitate the transaction more quickly. Is a lot of this business for now concentrated in California, I would think? You would think, but actually no. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually really interesting uh, to see the data, but one of the top three uh, used EV dealers in the country is in Ohio. Wow. Uh, the, we're, we're in Ohio. Uh, Cincinnati. Okay. That's, that is surprising and interesting. I'm flying to Ohio tomorrow. So what is it about that dealer in that market that makes it, what makes this dealer special? It's really consistent uh, across all of the, uh, the rooftops that I mentioned earlier who are specialized in EVs. It's, it's three things. And the first is that EVs are ingrained in the culture of the store. The, the opposite of that would be that uh, maybe they've designated one person to be the EV person, and that doesn't really work. What, what's required is that at the, the leadership level and all the way through, uh, members of the team can guide customers through the buying journey from firsthand experience and be very confident about it. Uh, the second aspect is their uh, inventory acquisition strategy. They're very proactive about acquiring EVs. They don't just passively receive them as trade-ins, and when they are proactively acquiring them, they're experts. They're paying attention to nuance, like what is the computer hardware? What is the software? What's going on with battery? And last uh, is their pricing strategy. They generally are subject matter experts within their own local market for the product rather than relying on indexes. And they price the vehicles to move. Not uh, overly cheap by any means, but uh, the name of the game in making money in UZVs is velocity. You have to turn them faster than you would turn a normal car. So I'm going to pivot for a second. Mm-hmm. 
you formerly worked at Tesla. I did. Have you bought or read the Walter Isaacson book yet? I have not. <laughs> Been a little busy, but I'm excited <laughs> to sit down and read it. What can you tell me about working at Tesla in terms of the culture and, and the Elon factor kind of within the walls of Tesla? Yeah, I mean, I could tell you a lot, but the most important... <laughs> the, yeah, Maybe we could do a whole other episode. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, it was, it was one of the best five years of my life. And I'll say that uh, one of the reasons it's such a tremendous business is because the people who gravitate toward that company are very uh, drawn by the mission. And their mission is to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. And by having a mission that every person at every level can rally and unify around, you can uh, accomplish things uh, that you would otherwise not be able to accomplish because we're all working tirelessly for something that's much greater than ourselves. I'm not sure because I don't have your resume in front of me like mm -hmm. where else you work. But mm -hmm. one of the things um, – I worked for a company once that was extremely dominated. Like the culture was extremely dominated by the founder mm -hmm. of, of the company. Mm -hmm. And I've also worked at corporations that have been around for a long time. Yeah. You know, So where, where that's not the case, right? So – and, and are we right that the culture of the company, like day-to-day, week-to-week culture, is very dominated by the founder and what the founder wants and thinks? Well, it's 120,000 people and it's global and he can only be in so many places at one time. But uh, there are core values that you uh, get to understand on your way in and uh, one of those being uh, approaching everything from a basis of first principles, which – is one of the core tenets for how they've been so successful because they are willing to rethink everything and not have too much regard for how things have worked uh, the way that they used to or just because the, that's the way that they used to. And he's been really good about uh, sort of crafting those uh, uh, values uh, that people can harness. But ultimately, at any company of that scale, uh, it's not really like one singular culture. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it definitely varies team by team. So I'm sure that you're because of the business you're in now and the business that your job you had at Tesla, mm -hmm. that you, you you know when you see a, a new EV mm -hmm. on the market, right? You have a lot of informed opinion assessing the viability, the likelihood of success. What is your opinion about the Cybertruck? Oh, I'm I'm so excited. <laughs> I think it's amazing. So uh, we're in Detroit right yeah. now. So. So we've seen the pickup market be dominated by three companies for a yep. long time. And so this is extremely different looking. So I got to tell you, my first inclination is that it doesn't – it looks like a, a, a vehicle to me with a low ceiling mm -hmm. for sales. Mm -hmm. But I'm guessing by your reaction that you think otherwise. What, why is that? Uh, I think that's because I've heard so many people tell me the exact same thing I just said, that they're super excited. And these are people who have never owned a truck before. Mm -hmm. uh, and I myself have owned a truck. Uh, my very first uh, car ever, actually, was a 1974 Chevy Love. Uh, but <laughs> a very that, small truck. Yeah, it was a very small truck. It was the S10 before it was the S10. Uh, that was the last truck I, I owned, but uh, this one will likely be the next. Okay. So I think that's the reason. Uh, it brings more people into the truck buying ecosystem, which is already quite huge, as you know. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Douglas, founder of Plug, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, we look forward to seeing more about what Plug's going to do in the marketplace. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks to Tim Reeser and Jimmy Douglas for their time and insights, the importance and opportunities around the fleet and commercial side of this transition into EVs. 
Remember, please subscribe to the Wards Auto podcast on your favorite podcast platform. You can also always play an episode right off the Wards Auto website when you see our weekly article supporting the current episode. Just go into the article and click on the link to the podcast and it'll play right off your laptop, smartphone or tablet. I'm your host, David Kiley. Our engineer is Graham Mitchell. Until next time, enjoy the ride.